Hello. This podcast is available unedited and ad-free at patreon.com slash Hamilton Morris. Each month, I release three to four new podcasts, and it was Patreon exclusive until recently. Many people contacted me and said they wanted me to figure out a way to make it freely available, and so I decided to accept sponsorship from a few of my friends. One of them is David Rentlin, the founder of a company called Lucy Nicotine. They make nicotine gum, nicotine pouches, nicotine lozenges, some of which are made with synthetic nicotine, which I think is pretty cool. Now, if you don't already use nicotine, I recommend that you don't start. It's habit-forming. But if you already do use nicotine products, and especially if you smoke tobacco cigarettes, I can say that this is a cleaner product. And it's also a product that I use personally. If you go to lucy.co and use the code Hamilton, you get 20% off your purchase. Lastly, this podcast is brought to you by Top Tree Herbs, an herbal tea company founded by my friend and pharmacopoeia producer, Soren Shade. This is not a traditional sponsorship in that I'm not receiving any money from them, but Soren is actually a producer on this podcast. They grow their own kratom domestically in Appalachia in a greenhouse, which is very beautiful. And they source leaves internationally, do third-party testing. I've been to the lab where they do the testing. They test for heavy metals and other adulterants, and it's ethically sourced in tea bag form. You can find their teas at toptreeherbs.com. Okay, so this is a long-in-the-making interview with the great Dennis McKenna. There is so much that I wanted to talk with him about, and there's so much to say to this great man that I feel like I only scratched the surface. He truly knows so much, not just because of his very direct involvement with psychedelic history through his relationship with his brother, who had arguably a greater influence on the world of psychedelics than any other single person, especially today. When we talk about somebody like Timothy Leary, it's usually the context of his influence on the 1960s or his past influence. But Terrence McKenna is somebody that is as important or more important now than he was at the height of his career when he was alive. He gained a second life through the internet, and that life is probably going to exist as long as YouTube exists. He's someone that as soon as you become interested in psychedelics, you find out about him and you listen to his videos and he's able to articulate all of the ill-formed, half-baked ideas that you may or may not have had in a way that feels so beautiful and compelling that there's a reason that he's beloved by all. And I think that with Terrence McKenna, one of the major issues is that people tend to take the things that he said too literally. Whenever I do an interview, someone says, well, what do you think of the Stone Ape hypothesis? What do you think of the idea that the government is keeping psychedelics illegal because they understand their ability to dissolve thought structures? What do you think of time wave zero? And my major thought about all of this is that it's poetry. It's not meant to be taken literally. It's not meant to be interrogated as something that is factual or non-factual. These are ideas that are intended to make people think about the world. And on that level, I think that everything that Terrence McKenna did was immensely effective. But behind McKenna and all of his work was Dennis McKenna, who is toiling away in various labs doing 
extremely interesting scientific research. In this interview, I talk about the influence of Dennis McKenna on my own scientific trajectory, and it's absolutely true that reading his papers was one of my first introductions outside of Alexander Shulgin to seeing how rigorously the subject could be studied. When people think about the past, they often have a tendency to assume that it was more or less the way things currently are. The 1960s must have been more or less the same. People were doing the same drugs. But what they forget is that the drug landscape of the 1960s in terms of psychedelics was fundamentally different from what we see today. And the largest single difference was that nobody had access to psilocybin-containing mushrooms. Unless you were Timothy Leary or somebody that could fly to Mexico and go to Oaxaca and use mushrooms in an indigenous context, you simply did not have access to them because for whatever bizarre reason, nobody realized that they grew in the United States. And even once they did realize that, nobody really knew how to cultivate them. If you look at early books about psychedelics, like the Psychedelic Guide to the Preparation of the Eucharist, they talk about cultivation of psilocybin-containing mushrooms, but they conclude that getting them to fruit was far too difficult. So what you were expected to do was simply grow the mycelium and then extract the psilocybin from the mycelium because fruiting them, that's something that nobody could ever manage. Dennis McKenna was the first person to translate the laboratory techniques for the cultivation of psilocybin-containing mushrooms into a format that was accessible to the average person. And he did that in 1976 with his book, Psilocybin Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide. This had a huge effect on the culture, and it is the reason that psilocybin-containing mushrooms are not only not an obscure substance, they are the first substance that most people use when they try a psychedelic. They have become the most accessible psychedelic. And in the 1960s, that was certainly not the case. You had LSD, you had synthetic DMT, right? Not DMT extracted from mimosa hostilis because that didn't exist then. You had a small number of synthetic psychedelics like DET, MDA, and DOM, but that was it. Peyote existed, but it wasn't that widely available. Some people had access to it, but for the most part, it was LSD and then maybe a little bit of access to things like MDA, DET, DMT, and so on and so forth. I met Dennis McKenna once years ago. We were speaking at a psychedelic conference together, and we were staying in the same house. And I was preparing for my talk with Jason, and I really wanted to talk with Dennis McKenna, but we had all this work to do, and then somebody said, well, we're dabbing. Have you heard of dabbing? And I had heard of dabbing, but I had never dabbed. And Dennis McKenna was dabbing. And I thought, okay, well, I, I can't pass up this opportunity to dab with Dennis McKenna. So I, I did maybe a, like a micro dab, a, a tenth of a dab with Dennis McKenna, and then just went back to work. But I had so many things that I wanted to ask him, and I'm glad that I had the opportunity to talk about a small number of those things in this conversation. As soon as we finished speaking, I started thinking, oh, but what about, I wanted to ask him about his relationship with Gordon Todd Skinner, or I wanted to ask him where he got the DET that he tried, or I wanted to go into more depth about Shaman Pharmaceuticals, which is a company that I keep 
encountering in all of my conversations with people and I find more and more interesting with each passing week or, uh, you know, the details of his involvement with this clandestine MDMA manufacturing operation or the ridiculousness of the Terrence McKenna CIA conspiracy theories. Maybe it's better that I didn't, uh, didn't go into that because it is actually ridiculous, but I kind of wanted to hear what he thought about the whole thing. But yeah, we didn't get to talk about everything, but we talked about a lot and I'm going to link a lot of the papers that we discussed in this conversation and you should really check them out because I'm not just flattering him when I say how great his scientific research was. His dissertation, the papers that he co-authored with Shulgin and Repke, these are seminal psychedelic papers that are absolutely crucial to read if you want to understand some of the fundamental research that went into our current understanding of the structure-activity relationship of psychedelics. So. Enjoy those papers and enjoy this conversation. I'm going to pause momentarily for an ad. This podcast was brought to you by Matcha.com, a source of high-quality, heavy-metal-tested matcha from Japan. They also now make a freeze-dried matcha cube that they are calling Space Matcha that is very delicious. It dissolves instantly in water, and you can even pop it directly into your mouth. It's a very futuristic product. I carry a bag of them in my backpack, and it's a really good way to have matcha on the go if you visit matcha.com and use the code hamilton you get 20 percent off any teas that you buy and a free gift thank you matcha.com As you might be able to tell, I'm sun averse. I'm, you know, the sun is shining in the basement window here, and I have this piece of cardboard I keep moving. But you know, I look, I look deathly pale in this light. Unfortunately, I'm as pale as a mushroom, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is appropriate for somebody that's basically lived been living in their basement for three years uh you know it's kind of nice to be past covid but we'll see if we really are anyway uh thank you very much for inviting me i have looked forward to this for a long time oh good yeah where are you right now i am in my basement in my townhouse in abbotsford british columbia there's so much to talk about i I really Absolutely. felt uh, a strong connection to your work because it was actually a paper that you wrote was the first scientific article that I ever read. It was not only my introduction to scientific literature on psychedelics, but my introduction to reading scientific papers at all. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And for me, it was really kind of a, a very memorable moment because I was had read about MMDA2 and... I started wondering, well, has anyone studied this? Is anybody, is it, uh, is it dangerous? Is, does it have neurotoxicity? What are the effects? And your paper was pretty much the only thing that had been published on the pharmacology of MMDA2. So yeah, that was an amazing moment. And you've made so many great contributions again and again. I keep coming across these things that you've done that I don't think tend to get a lot of attention, but for people that are really interested in the science of psychedelics, they're some of the best things that have ever been published on the subject. 
Well, that's really that's really kind of you to say. Uh, yes, I do tend to go for the obscure, <laughs> you know. And uh, I remember I remember the paper because it was when I was doing a postdoc at Stanford, and actually it was in I think Alex Shulgin was a co-author on this. He was. And he yeah. he had a bunch of these MMDA MDMA analogs, and we were we had an assay in the lab for neurotoxicity, and this was back in when people were worried about neurotoxicity of MDMA potentially, and so we basically did a structure activity uh, kind of survey of neurotoxicity in rat models, and and looked at the different you know, and most of them were not neurotoxic and yeah i remember that paper because I, I think it was behavioral pharmacology that was my sort of brief you know sojourn into the world of phenethylamines you know i've always been a tryptamine guy and focus on dmt and beta carbolines but that was uh, when i was uh, doing my postdoc with uh, uh, steve peruke at stanford he was doing MDMA research because you now he was interested in it. Also, that's where the funding was, so you know that's what we did. Yeah, I remember that paper well. Uh, I mean, actually, I don't remember it well, but I remember I remember it stood out because it was one of the few that we did with uh, with phenethylamines. Yeah, right. And I think it's interesting because throughout history, there have been these different justifications for scientifically studying psychedelics. And now, if you were to do a paper like that, you know, in the introductory section, you'd say, these substances are potential treatments for substance abuse disorder or depression or PTSD or something like that. But at that time, toxicity was one of the major motivations for studying these drugs. And was that something that you were studying because you were genuinely concerned and curious about the toxicity, or was it just a way to be able to study these things? Yeah, I wasn't really concerned about the toxicity. It, w it was what I studied because that's what was being studied in the lab, you know, and, and the, uh, Steve had funding for this, and a lot of people did. And, uh, and so when I joined his lab, right after I did my uh, my uh, his lab was the second of seemingly an infinite series of postdocs. Actually, I only did about three, but, uh, but uh, that was right after I finished my work at, N at uh, NIMH. I had a I had a so-called Pratt Fellowship at NIMH, and I was using uh, another phenethylamine, uh, DOI, uh, iodinated DOI, and autoradiography to map the serotonin 2A receptors. Uh, 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 DOI is incredibly selective for the 2A receptors. So we were doing these maps, all of this in rats' brains, of course, uh, and that's what I did at NIH. And then I got a postdoc with Steve Peruke, and he, was, he had funding for MDMA, so, and a bit of DOI. We did, we did DOI research, too, because we had these... You know, we had these iodine-125 labeled enantiomers of DOI. So we had, again, thanks to Shulgin, he was working in the Lawrence lab at that time, in the radionuclide lab, and, and so he was able to provide these uh, labeled en enantiomers. 
which gave us a tool that not a lot of neuroscientists had, you know. So I was doing that, then I moved to Steve's lab, and we we did the MDMA work, and we did uh, receptor binding with, uh, with DOI, trying to define uh, a second subtype, a 5H2A subtype, uh, that these things selectively labeled. And in fact, it was, you know, looking back on it, it was bogus science. I mean, I have to say, <laughs> honestly, because uh, Steve was obsessed with finding another subtype of 5-HT2 that was actually the hallucinogen receptor, the psychedelic receptor. And what was really going on I mean, we don't have to get into the weeds on this, you know, neuropharmacology stuff, which I barely remember anyway. But <laughs> we don't, we don't have. To, but, but the th what was going on is the DOI binds to a high affinity uh, uh, binding site on the two A receptor. You know, so you have to have the right conformation of the receptor to get binding. And if you if you abolish that conformation, then you get very little binding. You know, so but he was trying to make the argument that no, this is really a separate subtype of serotonin receptor, and he wanted to be the one. And I frankly didn't know enough to contradict him to raise questions. So anyway, we did that work, and, and then I, you know, I, I that was the last postdoc I I did in my sort of checkered career of postdocs and. And then I got back into uh, into ethnopharmacology, which was really what I was interested in anyway. I got back to uh, natural products, and I uh, uh, at a certain point, Steve said, "You know, I'm leaving Stanford." They they didn't give him tenure, so he said, "I'm going to go work for Genentech." And there's a whole story behind that. I won't get into that, but he said, "I'm leaving." And you better go find a job, <laughs> you know. And, and, I, and I, so that was a wake-up call. And, and you know, the universe smiled. And at the time, I got an email from Steve King, who was an ethnobotanist that I knew from conferences and things like that. And he sent an email saying there's this new pharmaceutical company starting up in the Bay Area, Shaman Pharmaceuticals. And they have a uh, CNS program. They're mostly looking for antivirals, but they have a CNS program. And they, you know, you're well suited to this, so you should talk to these people. And I did, and I ended up getting that job. That was my first foray into the corporate world. Uh, you know, and because I, 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 I came to it with all of this receptor binding stuff under my belt. I'd been doing receptor binding for for three years, you know, four years, really, if you include NIMH. So uh, so I set up their receptor lab, and I did. I worked with Shaman Pharmaceuticals for a couple, uh, about two and a half years. And then I got disillusioned with that, and that was sort of the beginning of my corporate general disillusionment with corporate science. Uh, you know the science they were doing was okay, but their their 
this this interview is probably going to get me in a lot of trouble. I don't know. <laughs> their their commitment to reciprocity and giving back, and you know, their commitment to respecting indigenous knowledge and all that was, shall we say, pro forma at best. You know, and that bothered. But even me. then, that's more than anyone had ever done, right? True, true. Yeah, and to their credit, they did send they did set up a nonprofit called the Healing Forest Foundation, and they were, uh, they, uh, they were supporting indigenous work in Peru. They were actually, you know, the main focus of their drug discovery program was not anything to do with psychoactives. It was uh, looking for antivirals, and they had identified an a potential antiviral in Sangre de Grado, which you may know. Uh, it's a famous Amazonian medicine used to, uh, for wound healing. The sap, the, the latex of Sangre de Grado is a very effective anti-inflammatory, heals wounds very quickly, and they thought there was an antiviral in there. So that's really what their focus was. But in order to do that work, they had, they had to harvest a lot of this stuff a tree, a small tree. Fortunately, it was fast growing. So they did have projects in the in the Peruvian Amazon to do reforestation to to plant Sangre de Grado, you know, in degraded lands because it, it grew easily and, and so on. So that was that was what they were mainly focused on. And the CNS program, they were looking for uh, for uh, uh, analgesics, basically, and uh, uh, and so I set the I set up the receptor lab, and that's what we were using to tr to screen these different extracts. And uh, at the time, uh, there was not very much known about salvia divinorum. You know, it was known that it had this traditional use and all that. Very little was known about the chemistry. You know. But I was uh, I was testing extracts of this thing. In I had all the opiate receptors set up. That was part of the bank of receptors I had available. I kept testing this thing, and it kept giving these really anomalous results. You know, and I was like, "This can't be true." You know, it <laughs> cannot be that potent. That just doesn't happen. You know, and so I kept running the assays and trying to figure out what I've done wrong to get these results. Then later, Brian Roth came along and characterized it, and yep, that's what it was. I mean, Salvinorin A is absolutely, really the most potent natural product ever discovered, including LSD. You know, and and I was getting I was getting like picomolar, you know, uh, inhibition constants, and it was crazy. And so you discovered I, this before Roth? You discovered the kappa agonist activity before Roth and just didn't believe it? I didn't believe it, yeah. Uh -huh. And it was on crude extracts, and I, and I kept running it, and I thought, this is really, there's something wrong, you know? So I, wasn't, I was not a discerning enough scientist, I guess, to say, really, maybe, maybe we're on to something here, you know? So I didn't even report it to corporate upstairs. I just said, you know, when we gave the reports, I just went, well, I don't know. I'm, these are the results. I don't believe them. <laughs> you well, know? What, what did you think was happening? Why did you think? 
I just couldn't believe that uh, that it was that potent at the concentrations that we were using, you know, in these radio ligand biting studies. So, but in fact, uh, that was that was solid data, and that that was what was happening. So, yeah, a couple of uh, that was, you know, that was another one of my misadventures in science, I suppose. But well, that, uh, that's a really interesting lesson because that was also before Siebert had done the self-experiment with salvinorin A, right? Mm-hmm. So that maybe helped Brian Roth a little bit because he already knew that the compound in question was amazingly potent and active at sub-milligram doses. So right, maybe right. that would have made him more inclined to believe the ultra-high affinity for the kappa opioid receptor. Well, he, he worked it all out and he showed that you know it was not only extremely high affinity, but also one of the most selective natural products. It hit the kappa opiate receptor and nothing else. That's just unheard of in a drug that it's that that selective. And uh, you know most drugs are dirty drugs. Like LSD is a good example. It hits serotonin receptors, of course, but an array of serotonin receptors and dopamine receptors and this and that, all at various uh, affinities. Uh, but uh, kappa the salvinorin A uh, hits only the kappa receptor and Brian Roth told me he said you know if I had set out to design a molecule that was a selective kappa opiate receptor agonist it would not look like salvinorin A <laughs> you know he says this stuff looks like cholesterol <laughs> you know it, it has no nitrogen it's you know this terpene thing and but it turns out that was uh, that was what it was and kappa you know, Salvadorne is one of these that may have some utility. It's not clear if it has a therapeutic uh, uh, utility and not found yet, but you never know. And, and I, I always looked at that as sort of the triumph of ethnopharmacology over drug design, you know, and my bias is toward ethnopharmacology. So, uh, so that was interesting. And then I worked with Shaman you know, for several years on, on that, and then, uh, yeah, eventually left them and went to work for Aveda, of all people, the cosmetics company in Minnesota. I met the founder of Aveda uh, at a conference, Seeds of Change, and he said, and I was feeling kind of marginalized at Shaman, you know, uh, and not happy with their ethical stance, and I and he said, well, come work for me. I'll pay you twice as much and you can do whatever you want. You know, and so I said, that's hard to pass up. And uh, and so I did move out there. He did pay me twice as much, which wasn't much even at the time. And But I couldn't do whatever I want, wanted, as it turned out. And what I was ending up, what I did for them is they were, you know, into natural cosmetics and this was at the time when the uh, herbal medicines were becoming popular and they just passed to Shea and all this so uh, Aveda was thinking about bringing out a line of herbal dietary supplements and they they uh, sent me to Brazil to look for cosmetic ingredients uh, couple you know and I went I went down to Brazil on their ticket unbeknownst to them 
I had been plotting to do this biomedical study with the UDV. And so uh, this was like 1993. So uh, I, you know, this, this was a, a plot more or less, or I didn't share with them. This was, but I just sort of took leave from what I was supposed to be doing for five weeks and went to Manaus and worked on doing this biomedical study with the UDV, which was, uh, yeah, probably significant at the time. It was one of the first real human, it wasn't exactly a controlled clinical trial, it was really an observational trial, but uh, we got about eight peer-reviewed papers out of that and some very interesting uh, interesting results. And and the, the principal investigator on the, on the that project because I wasn't an MD and I figured we'd need an MD and so Charlie Grobe uh, at UCLA who I what he was in the Hefter Institute so I knew him he came down and he was the principal investigator on what came to be known as the Waska study so that was uh, that was my return to ethnopharmacology and that was that played out over the next decade you know there were a bunch of papers that emerged out of that study that kind of pointed the way uh, to the you know scientific investigation of ayahuasca uh, in fact in in my talks on this I have a I have a slide that shows you know how many publications are there in about ayahuasca in, in PubMed prior to 1993 and there's like less than a dozen after 1993 it just exploded so a lot of people now there are like 300 publications if you search on PubMed on ayahuasca a lot of things pop up and yet it's never really made it into you know the drug development pipeline um which is probably a good thing. I, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's not the sort of thing that a scientist is usually drawn to because it has all of these variables associated with it. It's a mixture of different plants. It's hard right. to compare it across studies because there could be dramatically different concentrations of beta-carbolines or DMT or whatever else could be part of the admixture. So it makes sense that prior to your work, uh, the majority of it had been anthropologists and ethnobotanists and people like that that were studying it but weren't looking at uh, biochemical effects. Could you tell me a little bit about the findings from that work that you did? Well, the, uh, of course I did my PhD on ayahuasca, you know, in previously. My PhD, which I did actually here in Canada at UBC, was more straight uh, ethnopharmacology, you know, collecting the plants, uh, looking at the constituents, doing uh, in vitro assays for MAO inhibition and that kind of thing. Kind of straightforward stuff. Not really, uh, not groundbreaking or anything like that, but solid enough for what, what it was at the time. But then in the UDV study, we had psychological profiling and we had you know we did pharmacokinetics we did a number of things like that and uh, you know uh, so we had we had an interesting finding that came up which was 
almost accidental. We, we very naively asked the question, is there any kind of biochemical marker? Is there anything that makes drinkers of regular drinkers of ayahuasca different biochemically from non-drinkers in a way that we can detect? You know, and a very naive question. We didn't really know what we were looking for. But as it turned out, when we did this bunch of receptor assays using uh, platelets, you know, couldn't sample these people's brains, but we got platelets. And platelets, as you probably know, can be a peripheral, you know, marker for what's going on in the central nervous system. So we did assays on platelets, and it turns out we found this uh, significantly elevated levels of the serotonin transporters, which compared to age-matched control subjects who were not drinkers. So elevated levels of serotonin transporters. Hmm, what does that mean? We had no idea, but it was definite, definitely real effect. And uh, so then we thought, well, there is a biochemical difference. Is there any clinical, you know, connection here? Looking into the literature in a pretty cursory way, it, it, it became clear that, yes, there was. There was a, a literature associated with uh, uh, anomalously or uh, def anomalously low levels or deficiencies in the serotonin transporters and other monoamine transporters uh, linked to alcoholism, certain kinds of depression, homicidal tendencies, suicidal tendencies, all these pathologies linked to anomalous, uh, anomalously low levels of these transporters. Well, that was very interesting. And it was yeah, especially... Yeah, it's almost paradoxical. Yeah, yeah it's not what you'd expect. Because these were elevated levels, right? And so, yeah. and so when we compared that with the, uh, with the behavior, with, you know, we did these structured psychiatric interviews and with all the subjects and, and different types of uh, instruments to measure things like cognitive function and memory and all those standard kinds of things. But mostly the, the, uh, the structured psychiatric life story interviews of these people was, it was like, tell us your story. How did you start to take ayahuasca? Why did you take it? they almost all came back with these stories that, you know, I came to the UDV, usually a friend invited them, that UDV is not a church that solicits members, you know, you have to kind of find your way in. But they came to the UDV at a time of crisis in my life. Uh, I was depressed or I was, you know, involved in, uh, you know, drug abuse and all, all, all sorts of sort of dysfunctionalities mostly alcoholism this was the problem and they all pretty much reported that when they started drinking the tea it turned their lives around and uh, they they left behind these these uh, behaviors and they felt that as long as they kept drinking regularly and as long as they stayed in the UDV they attributed the 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 life change to the context as much as the medicine, you know, but they said, yes, the tea is important, but the church is important, as any good church member would, right? That, that it was the context of this very supportive community. I used to kid my friends in the UTV, I would say, you guys are like Mormons. 
but but I know now don't push any (laughs) buttons. Well, you know, there was something that came up. Uh, Anyway, uh, very sorry about that. It looks like this works, though. And we were talking about the UDV study. Yeah, so I had a question about that. So you found that among UDV ayahuasca drinkers, there was upregulation of serotonin transporters. And that's a little bit Mm -hmm. paradoxical because, for example, chronic administration of a dopamine reuptake inhibitor like Ritalin would cause upregulation mm-hmm. of the dopamine transporter in response to chronic blockade. But with SSRI antidepressants, you see the opposite. You see downregulation. And I've never really understood why that happens. And then on top of that, you're seeing the opposite once again. So if you, you know, chronically administer Prozac or something like that, you have downregulation of the serotonin transporter. So you're seeing the opposite of what you'd see with an SSRI antidepressant. So how do you interpret what that means? You know, it's a head-scratcher, frankly. I do not know how to interpret that. It's because it's exactly true what you say. And uh, ayahuasca is unique pharmacology because it's got, uh, you know, the main beta-carbolines are harmine and tetrahydroharmine. And tetrahydroharmine, it turns out, is responsible for this effect. And tetrahydroharmine is both an SSRI and uh, um, an MAO inhibitor. It's a weak MAO inhibitor, but it's a fairly potent SSRI. And something about this combined effect uh, leads to this and this this upregulation. It hasn't really been explained. It hasn't even been studied. But uh, the reason we know that it's tetrahydroharmine that's doing this is that uh, one of the investigators on the project, Jace Calloway, who did the work finding this anomaly, this anomalous binding, he actually was working in a lab in Finland at the time, and he went back to his lab and he had pure tetrahydroharmine. He had access to uh, SPECT imaging technology. So he just administered it to himself for a while, over a couple weeks, and he could actually track the upregulation of the receptors in himself, and then when he discontinued it, then they slowly returned to baseline. So we have an N of 1, right? (laughs) Hardly a controlled experiment, but we have an N of 1, pretty satisfied it's tetrahydroharmine, and I think that's a compound that needs to be looked into you know, in more detail because of this. And if the upregulation is traceable to this behavioral change, that's the thing. The relationship is almost too neat, you know. They have all these pathologies associated with uh, deficits in the transporters, and then they take ayahuasca and it turns their lives around, and you see a corresponding change in the biochemical marker. I mean, that's, it's like, you know, it's almost like you can't believe how clear it is. But that would be something to look at if we ever did a clinical study. And you wouldn't even have to use ayahuasca. You could use tetrahydroharmine and uh, see what happens. But, you know, the, this work is not, uh, it's not particularly funding, and we weren't able to pursue it at the time. This was a long time ago. Now we might be able to. You know, there are some new companies and so on. Some of them are interested in beta-carbolines, so maybe some of this work will get done. The beta-carbolines are totally fascinating. I had a 
uh, I, I don't want to say traumatic experience, but I had a difficult experience early on making my own ayahuasca where I thought, oh, okay, everybody combines the two in a single brew. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You want to make two separate brews, one with the enzyme inhibitor, one with the DMT. I'll take the ayahuasca Banisteriopsis capi brew and then wait 30 minutes or an hour and then take the DMT brew, which, you know, makes some biochemical sense. But the problem was I dramatically overdosed on the ayahuasca brew. And I had this experience of a very, very high dose of the beta carbolines. And it was extraordinarily unpleasant. I mean, extremely nauseating, very sedating. It was psychedelic or visionary, but not in a desirable way, in a kind of um, vaguely threatening, um, delirious way. And so after that experience, I maybe unfairly started to dismiss their contribution. And whenever I would make ayahuasca again, I would use meclobamide, this pharmaceutical MAOI, because of the opposite effect, because it didn't exert any character of its own, and it sort of transparently activated the DMT. But I think that your work with the beta carbolines is totally fascinating. I was actually revisiting your dissertation recently, because um, I had recommended this process for synthesizing 5-MeO-DMT, which is very easy for even an amateur chemist to do, but there's one catch, which is if you don't keep it sufficiently cold, there's a competing Pictet-Spengler reaction that produces a tetrahydrobetacarboline. And I think some people may have repeated the process that I had described, and I started seeing uh, reports of 6-methoxy-2-methyl tetrahydrobetacarboline. And I was wondering, you know, is this an MAOI? Has anyone ever studied this? And the answer is yes, one person studied it, and that was you. And in your dissertation, it's pretty much the only scientific discussion of that particular compound. And you found that it's a very, very weak MAOI, which was comforting because I was afraid that if a side product of this synthesis was producing a potent MAOI, that could be very dangerous in combination with 5-MeO-DMT. Yes, ab absolutely. Uh, that that's right. Uh, in combining MAOIs with five MAO DMT is probably not a good idea, you know, <laughs> because uh, obviously of the serotonin syndrome. Because, you know, uh, I mean, there was actually an, a not there was a report a few years ago of somebody that had died taking supposedly ayahuasca, and they had. And the, the toxicology showed they had extremely high levels of 5-methoxy-DMT in their system. And uh, a number of us ayahuasca scientists wrote into the Journal of Toxicology and said, this is not, this is not what to expect. You know, 5-MeO-DMT does not occur in ayahuasca in any traditional preparation, and there was something going on there that this guy had either deliberately added a bunch. I speculated even maybe that it was a suicide, but, you know, I didn't really put that in the letter. But it, the, the blood levels of the 5-MeO were off the charts, so something was going on and he was taking an mao inhibitor and uh, and you know he he didn't make it so 
So these things are not without, you know, their dangers when you when you combine these things. But uh, well, there's there's lots of work to be done on these beta carbolines. There's no doubt. And, and, uh, and given that uh, enzyme inhibition in and of itself doesn't produce these sorts of visionary effects, what is it that things like harmine and harmaline are doing to produce this sort of visionary effect? Because I, I don't believe they have uh, very high two A affinity. <laughs> They don't have high 2A affinity, but they do have some, and uh, and that's a good question. You know, they have not been studied well enough to really know what what they do. They do have they are They have psychoactive effects, and they're sedative, as you say, at high doses. They can be very nauseating. I mean, they're not pleasant drugs to take. You know, by themselves, and. You know, that's just another area that really ought to be looked at. You know, there's a lot of work, as you know, in this area. The whole, the whole pharmacology of ayahuasca. I mean, there's, there's, you know, tons and tons of PhDs left to be done with ayahuasca. By no means has it been figured out. Like all the admixture plants, you know, and this admixture technology besides the DMT and Banisteriopsis combination, there's a whole pharmacopoeia of admixture plants that are occasionally used and sometimes mixed with ayahuasca, sometimes used in the dietas, but they're used, you know, in conjunction with ayahuasca and they, uh, you know, they modulate the effects and there's just uh, not really, nobody's figured out Exactly. A lot of these are highly alkaloidal plants, you know, indole alkaloids, but not uh, not tryptamines, not simple like iboga type alkaloids, for example, in, in things like Tabernay Montagna, which is a uh, very commonly used admixture plant. What does that do to the effects of ayahuasca? So, you know, would that there were funding, this work could be done. And somebody else will have to do it because my day is done and the other the other thing is you know the important uh, another factor here is you know the plants are disappearing and the knowledge is disappearing you know and that's there's a lot of pressure on these plants now because ayahuasca has become so popular and over harvesting and so on these are effectively endangered species and that that's something i wanted to uh to talk with you about that in this podcast, we, we kind of got off on this tangent, but I did want to uh, take a minute to talk about this conference that we're organizing uh, in in the UK. You you probably heard of the ESPD fifty, of course, uh, yes, that I did in twenty seventeen. Well, we're doing ESPD fifty five in May. And uh, same same model. It's going to be in the UK at an amazing place, and uh, we've got an incredible list of speakers, and uh, we're 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 going to do this. So the uh, so I wanted, with your help, to let your listeners know about this. Uh, the website is under construction, but it should be live next week, maybe as early as Monday. And it will be uh, just ESPD55.com. And so uh, people can look at it. Uh, 
and see if they're interested in it. Uh, like we did the last time, we're going to uh, live stream it. And last time we did this, you know, this was pre-COVID, right? And, and we live streamed and we had 75,000 people who watched this thing at one point or another. So we hope to double that this time. And uh, we're charging a little bit because I now have this nonprofit, but not very much for access. And uh, the recordings will be up and, you know, take a look at it. When, uh, I, can, I can let you know when the website's up. It, it's, we're hoping to launch it on Monday. Oh, wow. So that's, that's one of, that's our biggest, project with the with the McKenna Academy you know uh, when I did the one in 2017 I was I had no institution I was just a freelance you know investigator sort of with no real respectable <laughs> you know institutional affiliation other than the University of Minnesota I was still teaching there well I left that behind and then I came up to Canada and then I said well you know I'm basically an academic at heart nobody wants to give me a position you know so I'll make my own damn academy and, and teach from that you know and that's what I did and uh, we've been uh, you know I have an amazing team we've been pretty successful with fundraising so we're doing this conference and then we have another uh, big project going on, a long-term project called uh, Bionosis at McKenna Academy. And people can look at that. And this is a very complex long-term project. Uh, initially, it has to do with making a series of documentaries about Amazonian traditional medicine and kind of a snapshot of the state of the art at this time in the post-COVID, post-ayahuasca tourism, globalization, climate change environment, you know, traditional medicine in the Amazon is still very important to the people. And this knowledge is in danger of being lost. And so what the, the subtitle of that or the subtext is Bridges to Ancestral Wisdom. We're trying to collect this knowledge and preserve it and make these documentaries. We're going to release the first short, first one in the series at ESPD 55. And then the second phase of it, which may or may not ever happen because it takes a lot more funding, but I, I think we'll be able to get it, is to work with the herbarium in Iquitos. And my, my association with the herbarium at the university in Iquitos goes back 40 years or more of when I first uh, went to Iquitos to do my field work. I hooked up with the uh, people at the university there. And one of the botanists who is now the curator of the herbarium, a guy named Juan Ruiz, he was a forestry student at the time. And he, the director of the herbarium at the time, just told him, you know, basically take these gringos out let them collect some plants, bring them back alive. I'm sure that was the conversation that was held. But over the years, I became great friends with Juan Ruiz, and he has incredible knowledge. Just it's all in his head, you know. He never writes anything down. So he has this amazing uh, experience as, 
you know, he's got one foot in science, being a, a botanist, and, and one foot in traditional medicine since he's lived in Iquitos all his life. And uh, we want to do this project to digitize the herbarium in, uh, in Iquitos and put it online, uh, but not just a, a bunch of plant images. We want to actually make an immersive uh, representation of it. So we're calling it like the visionary rainforest. We're working with some artificial intelligence and VR wizards who have uh, very interesting ideas on how to make this a dynamic, interactive, immersive experience to actually go into the collections in the herbarium and fly through them. And all of the in the representation of the air for, uh, of the rainforest, the region around Iquitos where these things are collected, there'll be like geolocation nodes where these collections were made. And then you can click a node and the collection will come up, who collected it, where, when, and sometimes why. And then that will be linked to other databases, you know, like uh, phytochemical and ethnobotanical databases and so on, to make this a really, you know, the idea is to kind of make this, take this, you know, sort of third world, run down, moldering, neglected <laughs> herbarium and turn it into a world-class resource for uh, floristic research in the Amazon. So, you know, it's our little bit to try and slow down what's happening there because, you know, I've always thought that if you can link a plant to information, uh, you've increased the value of the plant, essentially. And, you know, you make somebody... And the fact that somebody collected a plant and deposited it in the herbarium uh, means that at some point, for some reason, they thought that was worthwhile. So that'll be a three to five year project and probably cost well into the millions if we do it right. And, uh, you know, we don't know if we can get support, but, uh, uh, you know, we're optimistic. And there's a lot of interest right now in preserving this knowledge. So that's those are our two big things that we're that we're doing through the McKenna Academy right now. So the, that's my pitch. That's my plug. That sounds amazing. <laughs> that can, sounds really great. I, yeah, I, I think it will be, uh, you know, just, this is, this is our website. It's just McKenna.academy and people can look at other stuff. There's a lot of resources and links and things like that. that that's great. Yeah. I'll, I'll link to that in the description of this. I was reading a, a profile of Mark Plotkin that was published in the New York Times in 1999, and there was an interview with Wade Davis where he made a comment saying something along the lines of that the low-hanging fruit had already been picked, that the reason that Shaman Pharmaceuticals was encountering difficulty finding viable commercial products was because people had already found all of the obvious candidates decades ago. and. On one hand, you have this fact that we live in a world of almost infinite biodiversity and we've only scratched the surface. But on the other hand, what Wade Davis said seems to be more or less true. I'm not aware of any major ethnobotanical breakthroughs that have occurred in recent years. Are you aware of any new psychedelic plants that have been discovered or any uh, major new discoveries in that realm? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, there are. I don't agree. I, the low-hanging fruit has been collected pretty much, but that's why you have to look at the more obscure areas. Uh, and at ESPD 50, at ESPD 55, we, at ESPD 50, we talked about this, but ESPD 55 as well will talk about that. Uh, you have to look into the... Not even necessarily, uh, uh, you know, at the plant world. I mean, the fungal world. The, for example, fungal endophytes, uh, which are fungi that that live inside of plants. But often, the phytochemical uh, constituents that you find in plants, uh, like sedges, for example, uh, are not from the plant. They're actually from the fungi that live inside of them. And for example, in Peru, there's a, a group of uh, sedges. This podcast is also brought to you by the Apollo. The Apollo is a wearable vibrating bracelet or anklet that appears to be able to modulate your consciousness. And when I first heard about this thing, I was very skeptical. I was at a conference and met a psychiatrist and neuroscientist named David Rabin, and he had built this prototype and let me wear it for a night. During the entire night, I felt very calm and euphoric and good. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this is just placebo. But I also told him that if he ever built more of them, I'd really like to try it again. So he sent me one. And now I've used it for hundreds of hours. It's a very versatile, wearable device that they are selling for stress relief. But you can modulate the frequency of the vibrations to create either a stimulating or calming effect. You can actually sleep wearing it and it seems to help sleep or you can change the frequency and it has a sort of stimulating effect, which I sometimes use while I'm on a long drive. I've tried a lot of these different non-pharmacological means for alteration of consciousness, like binaural beats and various types of stroboscopic visual stimulation. Usually I'm skeptical of this sort of thing, but this tactile modulation of mood actually does seem to work. The idea being that it delivers a gentle, soothing vibration that conditions your nervous system to recover and rebalance after stress. That's the idea. It's sort of like a vibrating chair or strapping a purring kitten to your leg. If you find a purring kitten calming, then I think you would also find this calming. It's a similar sort of phenomenon. If you're interested in getting one of these devices, you can go to apolloneuro.com to read more about it and use the promo code HAMILTON for 10% off. Thank you, Apollo. So, so back to you were talking about novel ergoline compounds. Have the psychoactivity of any of these compounds been assessed? Hasn't really, haven't really been assessed. You know, uh, uh, I mean, a, a lot of the ergolines in the uh, in the piripiris uh, in the in the fungi associated with them are not that different from what you find in morning glory seeds. So morning glories are the low molecular weight lysergic acid amides. I imagine these are similar, but thing is, the chemistry is really complex. So there may be some interesting, interesting things there. And uh, there are there are new psychedelics out there. Like some of these admixture plants are, uh, uh, you know, they're admixtures used in the dietas with ayahuasca, but some of them are purportedly, uh, you know, psychoactive or psychedelic, maybe psychedelic or certainly psychoactive in and of themselves, you know. And so that's a whole Amazonian pharmacopoeia that's worth uh 
worth sorting out. And there are other, you know, there there are other interesting. I mean, for example, as long as we're on that subject, there's a one called uh, uh, it's called Toei Toei Negro. You know, in in traditional Amazonian medicine, Toei is Datura. Right or Brugmansia, the tree deturas, and we know they're psychoactive. They're scopolamine. Toei negro is a is a different family, uh, Acanthaceae. It's a Teleostachia lanceolata. It's said that if you make a tea out of the leaves, that you have a three day experience. You know, and which. Uh, the plant appears to you and talks to you and this kind of thing. And, you know, and it sounds very much like, uh, it sounds anticholinergic to me, you know, and, and I think there are, you know, that's a whole uh, area of pharmacology that is difficult to, uh, to explore because, you know, the states of mind are not very pleasant. Uh, so it takes somebody braver than me to go after this. But, you know, I, I've done my thing with Datura, and, and you know, I'm, I'm done with that. You know, I, I uh, took Datura at the age of 16, not even knowing what it was. And, you know, it was a wild ride for sure, you know, which I, I wrote about in my book. And, uh, yeah, uh, you probably dipped into that area too, right? Just a tiny bit. I've taken trihexafenadil because I wanted to experience it with something that had a shorter half-life than atropine or scopolamine. And what I felt, which was really marginal, was already enough for me to think that I didn't want to go further. I'm sure one day I'll have a full anticholinergic delirium experience, but I'm not in a rush to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't blame you. You know, it, it was very difficult, and I I was so ignorant of what I was doing. Here's how ignorant I was, Hamilton. At age 16, I thought that I was taking a variety of morning glories. I knew nothing about plants. I And this this bush was growing in the some vacant lot close to my house, and I thought, oh, this is moonflower. You know, so I thought it was a kind of morning. I shouldn't even be admitting this on, on uh-huh. public, but I thought, oh, this will be, you know, it'll be like LSD. And I, I had taken LSD once before in my life. So I took this stuff and, you know, had a typical Datura experience, which was harrowing and horrific, and all the time laboring under the delusion that oh this is what a bad lsd trip is all about uh-huh. no this is what a textbook deterrent trip is about <laughs> you know and it was crazy i mean it it was 36 hours and it was really very strange and i did not want to uh repeat it you know i mean and, and so i didn't but the thing is, there's probably things about these states of mind that might have some virtue. I don't know. I mean, it's very peculiar. And interestingly, looking at some of these uh, uh, novel, uh, uh, potentially psychoactive plants and 
fungi that we'll be talking about at, at the conference. Uh, one of them is these these putatively psychoactive beliefs that have come up, uh, used in New Guinea and now used in you know there are reports from China that's uh, I think it's they're called Chao Ren Ren, which in Chinese means the little person person. And you see these diminutive Lilliputian-like figures, you know. And uh, uh, one of our presenters is going to be talking about uh, about this these species, these Boletus species. And if you read the reports, it sounds very much like an anticholinergic nightshade-type detura-like experience, you know, which I mean, they last, you know hours to days, many hours to days, sometimes long periods, like there are reports of people don't recover after a month, you know, and uh, uh, and if you look at the, the phenomenology of it, sounds very nightshady, sounds anticholinergic, and, but, you know, again, there may be novel chemistry here, and that's, that's one of the reasons it's important, you know, uh, to look for novel psychoactive drugs. You know, the whole premise of ESPD-50 or ESPD is not just to find new novel ways to get high, you know, although there is that, but to find new molecules like salvinorin A, which is not something most people would take recreationally, but it's opened up a whole new area of psychopharmacology. You know, novel structures often need lead to novel mechanisms and you can really learn something using this. So these things are molecular probes as much to, you know, useful in neuroscience as they are to provide, uh, you know, reckless psychonauts like you and me with novel experiences, you know. There's really a, a scientific rationale beyond that, you know. So, so yeah. Has anyone done chemical analysis on these boletes? Uh not that I know of, and they, they're very hard to nail down. Sometimes they're active and sometimes they're not, and it seems to depend on whether they're cooked or not or how much they're cooked. Uh, I had some friends, uh, I have some, still have some friends, uh, actually at, at ESPD50, they were at, they were at the conference, and that's just when this, these reports were surfacing, and we were talking about it. And uh, uh, the gentleman, uh, his husband is a is Chinese and speaks Chinese fluently, and they thought, well, this is. And they lived in Thailand at the time, and they thought this is worth going after. So they went to Yunnan uh, province, where these uh, these boletus grow during the mushroom seasons. They went through the marketplace. They ate every damn boletus they could find, and they got absolutely no effect. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, and then and because my friend was convinced, oh, this will be a new molecule, you know, we'll make billions. And you know, I said, hold on, cowboy, wait a minute. <laughs> you got to find at least an active uh, an active mushroom. They couldn't find one. But plenty of other people have. So, what determines, uh, you know, whether they are uh, active or not? It could be seasonal. It could be 
a different species. You know, it, it's just a mystery, which is why it's worth looking into. But uh, nobody's figured this out yet. Have you followed this issue with Rhodocolebia maculata, this mushroom that contains a kappa agonist? But it seems that the most recent research shows that it's not actually a kappa agonist. I am not familiar with that. Yeah. Calibolide. It was. It seemed like there was a, a salvia-like mushroom for a period, but now that uh, finding has been revised or disproven. Who did this work? The original pharmacology and characterization of calibolide was maybe in 2017, and I can't remember who did the work, but the, uh, the new work where they studied calibolide again and found that it didn't bind to kappa came out this year. Hmm. So I was excited because I thought this was an example of something totally new that had been found, not only a new potentially psychedelic mushroom, but a new type of psychedelic experience from a mushroom. But yeah, it, it doesn't look good anymore. It doesn't look like a psychedelic? It doesn't look like calibolide binds to the kappa opioid receptor and acts as an agonist. But then that's exciting because you could figure out what it did bind to. And who knows? Maybe it's a novel receptor. But this is the opposite. This is instead of people observing an effect and then looking for a chemical pharmacological explanation, people found the chemical and the pharmacology before observing any effect. I don't know that this actually has an effect. This is another, I, I'm not aware of any self experiments because this is kind of one of the complexities is you do need some human interaction with these plants in order to really uh, validate these findings. I mean, the same thing happened with 5-bromo-DMT in sea sponges, where, you know, it was very provocative, and Sasha Shulgin wrote about it in T. Call, and it's easy enough to synthesize. I've synthesized it. Uh, it even became a, a gray market commodity. A lot of people used it, but it's incredibly weak as a psychedelic. It's interesting that it's the only psychedelic known from the ocean and only the ocean, but uh, even with IV injection, it, it is not an especially potent compound, but it does do something. It is a very weak psychedelic. Yeah, we have somebody reporting on that at ESPD 55. We've got a marine biologist that's been... Uh, that's going to give an interesting talk on these sponges. He's actually done some metabolic studies as well and feeding precursors into these, into these uh, sponges and getting some novel compounds. I understand that's what his report is going wow. to be about. You know, So that's interesting. As far as this other one, Hamilton, I mean, get on it, man. You're, <laughs> you're, the, you're the one now because I'm much too old to do this stuff you know and i uh, i still you know i have some cardiac issues i don't want to kill myself uh another area that's interesting that i really tried to get somebody to present on and i and they just blew me off but the the psychedelic fish or the psychoactive uh, fish and there are about 30 species of them again Com the chemistry is a complete black box, and uh, like the Salima porgy is the common. That's one of the ones that's come to that surfaced, no pun intended, recently, and uh, I think that's fascinating. You know, and these are another group that sometimes they're psychoactive and sometimes they're not, and pointing to the conclusion that it's not the fish, but probably something that the fish is sequestering. 
you know. Yeah. And but that's another really interesting area of uh, on you know psychopharmaco obscure psychopharmacology. Yes, yes, it certainly is. Yeah, there, there's one passage in your book that I wanted to ask you about. You briefly describe uh, being recruited to synthesize MDMA before it was a controlled substance in the 1980s. And I'm very curious about that time period when people were making MDMA in these semi-underground gray market labs. It wasn't explicitly illegal because there was no federal analog act and it wasn't a controlled substance. Right. But, and there was a emerging demand for it. And you yourself say that even though it wasn't illegal, there was something a little bit off-putting about going right to industrial manufacture of the psychoactive drug. Could you tell me a little bit more about that period and what was going on? Sure, uh, I can. Yeah, I, I was fresh out of my PhD. I was down in California trying to find either a job or a postdoc, you know, and uh, not so easy when you've got a PhD in ethnopsychopharmacology, you know, and people are not beating, your, beating down the door to hire you. And uh, this uh, fellow was uh, someone that... Uh, uh, I think Alexander Shulgin. Alexander Shulgin, you know, was the outside examiner on my thesis. So I had a connection, and then I'd been with him to Esalen and Terence a couple times. And he introduced me to this gentleman. I don't even remember his name, but they were, they wanted to, they had a place up in uh, Mendocino, I think, and they wanted to manufacture kilograms of MDMA every week and they had this semi-automatic uh, synthesis system set up and you know and he said you don't even have to know chemistry all you have to do is turn the machine on and it'll do it you know and we just want you to you know come on and do it and as much for who you are as what you know and I and but at the time I was kind of full of myself and I was said well you know this this doesn't look like a career path for me <laughs> you know even though I probably could have made a lot of money but I decided that uh, I would just pass it up I I went to the place I met the guy and it seemed seemed very culty to me you know and I have an aversion to cults and it was like oh this is weird. You know, I just don't like the vibe, so I never pursued it. <laughs> Why do you think Sasha was involved with these people? Because this is kind of one of the interesting things is I've, I've heard a number of people who Sasha helped in the industrial or at, le at the very least large scale manufacture of MDMA. So this is clearly something that he not only approved of, but even facilitated to some extent. Did he tell you at all about his motivations for even involving you in such a enterprise no not really i mean he was he was just you know sasha helps everybody he was he was so open about everything and he just you know he just knew that i just got my phd he was knew i was looking for a job and looking for some kind of a gig you know after coming back from coming down from canada uh and uh, and he just you know, it was just, well, these people are doing something interesting. Why don't you give them a call? And I, I did. He neither endorsed them nor nor denounced them. He just said, 
this is this is one group that's doing this. There might be a lead here, but I I ended up not working for you know not doing anything with them, and I actually ended up going to San Diego and working for a, doing another postdoc which had nothing to do with psychopharmacology. That and that was actually uh, a the my only qualification was that I knew sterile technique, and then we were doing this work with with these strains of yeast and selenium, uh, and that was a whole other story. But that was that was not something that uh, I wanted to do or was interested in particularly. But I wanted to. Uh, it was a postdoc. It took me to San Diego. I met some very interesting people in San Diego, not connected to my job. Uh, uh, but then the, the NIH uh, fellowship came in. You know, back in those days, people sent reprints, requests, right? No emails, nothing like that. You got a postcard in the mail. And I got a postcard from this guy at NIH, NIMH and uh, requesting my papers on ayahuasca, which had just come out. And I knew his, I knew him from the literature because his name was Juan Saavedra. And he and Julius Axelrod had published on uh, the first papers on endogenous DMT. You know, they'd isolated DMT from rabbit's lung, I believe. And and I thought that was interesting. And he here he is requesting a paper. So I wrote back, I wrote a letter with the, sent the reprint, and basically said, you know, if you're crazy enough to uh, request this paper, maybe you're crazy enough to send, you know, hire me on or give me a gig of some kind. I didn't quite put it that way, but just, you know, we have mutual interests here. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and, and he wrote back a very kind letter and said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is this, uh, there is this program called the Pratt Fellowship, the Pharmacology Research Associate Traineeship for non-pharmacologists to get training in pharmacology. And he said, apply for this. I can sponsor you. Maybe you'll get it. Maybe you won't. Well, I did, and I got it. That's what took me to Bethesda. And originally, we were going to work on ayahuasca, something about ayahuasca, because as it turned out, as I later learned, he had been in the Amazon with Schultes and my supervisor, Neil Towers, on the uh, RV, Her uh, RV uh, not Heraclitus, that was later, the RV Alpha Helix, the... Scripps Institution of Oceanography's research vessel took a ethnobotanical uh, expedition to the Amazon in 1979. And, uh, uh, you know, Schultes was in charge, uh, and Neil Towers, my PhD supervisor, was in charge, and Juan Saavedra was on that boat as well. So he actually knew my supervisor in the, in the Amazon, So, which I didn't even know when he invited me to apply for the fellowship. I learned that later. And, uh, yeah, so it's interesting. It's another one of these small world phenomena. You know, there's just not that many of us. And it's a fairly incestuous bunch back in those days. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. And I also wanted to ask you about your 1976 publication of the psilocybin mushroom grower's guide, mm -hmm. which 
is something so important that I don't think people even fully recognize the magnitude of that contribution because you know today we take mushrooms so much for granted that I think if you ask an average person did mushrooms exist in the 60s were people taking psychedelic mushrooms they'd think yeah yeah of course people did psychedelics in the 60s and they don't know that it really wasn't until the mid to late 70s if not the 80s and really probably the 90s that this became a prominent part of psychedelic culture mm -hmm. and that can be traced very much directly to you i think you know your brother often gets a lot of the credit if not all of the credit but you are the one who is responsible for establishing the technique for that cultivation. So mm -hmm. did you realize how monumental what you were doing was and what effect it was going to have on the culture? Not really. I mean, we, 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 uh, only later did we realize how impactful that was, you know, and of all the things that I've contributions I've made to psychedelics in some ways, in, in some ways I'm proudest of that one, which we published the book under pseudonyms, right? Cause we were paranoid but in terms of its actual impact, it's had been far more significant than any paper I've published because, you know, it did have this societal impact. And uh, uh, but we didn't really understand that at the time. We just wanted to figure out how to grow mushrooms because we'd come back from La Churera. We'd had full of these crazy experiences, which you probably have already have read about. And we wanted validation. We wanted to give people uh, access to mushrooms so that they could validate what we'd been, our experiences, or not, you know, and just say the McKenna's are nuts. And this doesn't happen. Well, of course, people did validate it, and then some. Uh, so that was the motivation at the time, was just to figure out a way to grow them ourselves. And then it seemed like it made sense to publish this little book or really a pamphlet is what it amounted to but it was a simple way to do it uh of course there are many better ways to do it these days it's kind of you know obsolete it's pretty labor intensive but but that's what we did and we wanted to get it out to people and that really gave people a lot of access to mushrooms i mean any reasonably you know persistent nerdy 11th grader could figure out how to do this, you know, and uh, a lot of them did. And I, I really think that's what brought mushrooms to the, uh, you know, brought mushrooms into society, gave people access to mushrooms, you know. Uh, we weren't the only ones that were working on this at the time. There were other people like Bob Harris and actually even Paul Stamets at the time, but we were the ones that published you know, and uh, in an accessible way. So yeah, I I am uh, I am glad we did it, and I'm not repentant. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, did you know Stephen Pollock? I never knew him. No. Yeah. Notorious guy. Yeah, certainly. And you mentioned being afraid when you published that, and. I think even today, people are sometimes afraid to talk about these things. And if you're somebody who is, you know, a prominent figure in the psychedelic community, often the last thing you want to do is acknowledge that you're afraid to talk about these things. Because if you're afraid, then everyone else should be afraid. Um, but it was, I'm sure, 
a very big part of not only your motivation for not using your real name and something like that, but throughout your career. I mean, was that something that, that weighed on you and on your brother, the fear that maybe there would be some reprisal for speaking so openly about these things and making such enormous contributions to public understanding of them? Yeah, I think I think there was a little of that. I mean, these were very paranoid times, you know, the 70s, the 80s, it was the war on drugs. Terence was really the one of the few public voices that was talking about psychedelics in a public way. Uh, and yeah, we he was concerned, I was concerned, especially because we were in fact growing these mushrooms during a lot of that time, which is something that uh you know, so, and, you know, there was a commercial aspect to it as well. I mean, you know, my graduate student days were a lot less impoverished than most of my fellow graduate students because <laughs> I could grow mushrooms in my closet and, you know, and, and did and made many people happy, made a little money on the side, not very much. I mean, I was far from getting rich off these things, but uh, there was a lot of paranoia. And Terence did that too for a long time. But then, particularly as he began to get more public, it, more public, he his paranoia levels also rose. And eventually he decided that he had to stop. And he did. And by that, but by that time, he was like a cultural icon. So he could, he could, make a living using his talent, which is his gift of gab, basically. Being Irish, right? <laughs> he, <laughs> he could spit out these tales. I mean, people would listen wrapped to anything that he wanted to talk about. And, you know, I used to tell him, you could read the phone book in front of these people and they'd hang on to every word. You know, it wasn't the way, it wasn't what he said, it was the way he said it. Yeah. No, I agree. It's like poetry. It, it really is amazing. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And he was also selling spores, which is something that I don't often see talked about. His company was called Syzygy. What was he doing? That's right. Well, that was a way that was uh, exactly. they. Uh, he and Kat started this business called Syzygy, and they were selling spores. And that was a way to get the mushrooms out to people and sell these, you know, the spores, which didn't contain psilocybin, and they were not really illegal. Other Eventually, states started to outlaw them, make them more difficult. But that was, and when they started that, I thought, no, this will never fly. That's ridiculous. People are not going to pay for spores. But I was completely wrong. You know, they got a lot of orders for these things, and they would sell them on these little slides, you know, microscope cover slips and in a little plastic. They were very elegantly presented. They sold thousands of those things, you know, and that was part of spreading the spore, I suppose. Uh, you know, I... Uh, Probably one of the reasons I wasn't so paranoid, I mean, I was somewhat paranoid, but one of the reasons I was less paranoid was uh, I was able to affiliate myself with respectability, you know, uh, having these academic connections, uh, either, you know, like I could go to NIH and study psychedelics, or I could, you know, uh, work with 
different people who had permission to do this work. So by by hiding behind the academic, the the you know shield of academic respectability, I could get away with a lot, you know. And it was all perfectly legal. I was not particularly interested in uh, in not being legal. It was, and then uh, yeah, so that that is how I dealt with it, you know. And for a long time, uh, you know, Terence was the person doing the public speaking. I was not particularly interested in being a public figure, you know. But then we began to be known for for work that, that we did together. But I preferred to stay in the background for a long time. You know, it was just easier that way. And he was doing such a great job of it, you know, so I didn't need to be out there. And uh, like this, uh, you know, this uh, UDV study is a good example. You know, I was working for a company and the study had nothing to do with the company. It was completely unofficial. But because it was in Brazil, nobody was concerned. We did all this work. We published peer-reviewed papers and then... You know, and then eventually that, but there was always this sort of patina of respectability and academic, you know, something or other about it. Right. The cosmetics company doing ayahuasca research. It's good. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and then Charmin Pharmaceuticals, same thing. You know, I took that receptor binding experience and set up their receptor lab and then you know, later that in the in the aughts in the in the mid two uh, thousands that came in handy as well because uh, you know I did uh, I got a, I was at the University of Minnesota uh, teaching uh, ethnopharmacology and botanical medicines for the Center for Spirituality and Healing, which is the alternative complementary medicine program and I was just an adjunct professor you know I was nobody adjunct professors are scum they're lower than the janitors on on the on the scale you know if anybody who's been one but I liked teaching that and I went I went to a conference uh by NIDA that was staged by NIDA and they invited me the, the name of the conference was Potential therapeutic uses of illicit natural psychoactive substances, but they got the word illicit in there. They invited me to speak, you know, a bunch of, along with other people. I think Jonathan Ott was there, some other people were there, like that. And I talked about ayahuasca, which is what I'd always talked about, and uh, presented and all that, and went home. And then a couple weeks later, I got a, a letter. Uh, or an email from uh, somebody at the Stanley Medical Research uh, Institute. That was a foundation that supported schizophrenia research. And he said, uh, uh, he said, I was in the audience at this symposium that you presented, thought it was very interesting. And uh, he said, you know, we're interested in new medicines, new compounds, we're interested in natural products to treat schizophrenia. And would you, we have a study going on in China, looking at traditional Chinese medicine, nothing in South America. Uh, would you potentially be interested in applying for a grant? You know, and I said, well, I don't, sure, why not? I 
don't know, I'm just an adjunct professor. And he said, well, you know, we gave away $130 million last year to support this research. And I said, well, you know, where do I sign, <laughs> right? I, uh, anyway, I, I did apply for the grant and uh, I didn't get $130 million, but I got half a million dollars. And that was great for me because here I am more or less way past my work in Peru, but it was a chance to reconnect with all these people and that I'd worked with before, including Juan Ruiz. So I went to Peru three or four, four or five times to do collections uh, on their nickel and uh, brought these samples back. And I, I, uh, and I, I connected with Brian Roth and they did all the uh, they did all the receptor stuff at that time. They had all of this set up. They ran the NIMH psychoactive drug screening program, which you're probably familiar with. So I, I connected with him and a chemist at uh, at the University of Minnesota, natural products chemist. So I was kind of the glue between these different uh, factions, and we collected. A lot of a fair amount of plants, and we screened these uh, these extracts in about thirty different kinds of neuroreceptor assays. And uh, the idea was to find something. The, the focus was really to look for uh, plants that might be useful for treating cognitive deficits. Not not so much schizophrenia per se, but cognitive. Uh, deficits in people with schizophrenia so that grades over into dementia and that kind of thing and uh, you know we didn't find a novel compound that was the the solution but we found oh half a dozen plants that were quite interesting in terms of their receptor profiles and uh, didn't really get beyond that you know didn't uh, get further funding to go into it but uh but again, this is another lead that could be followed up, you know. And some of these uh, Amazonian plants are, uh, you know, contain varieties of, you know, mixtures of interesting indole alkaloids, and so that's what these plants were. So, so that was good, and eventually a paper came out about that. So, I was able to fulfill my obligations for for the grant and and reconnect with peru and that that's really when i started going back to peru on a regular basis and and reconnecting with ayahuasca and all these uh, all these people that i'd worked with before so that's it you mentioned your dissatisfaction with shaman pharmaceuticals and based on my very limited understanding of that company and what they were trying to do. It sounds like they were at least trying to do the right thing, and maybe it didn't uh, it didn't pan out exactly how they would have hoped. But now there are hundreds of psychedelic pharmaceutical companies that have emerged in the last couple of years, and I'm sure you're hearing from a lot of them. What do you think generally about what's going on in the psychedelic space? Well, I think it's a very mixed bag, you know. Uh, none of these companies are really looking seriously at natural products, you know, other than psilocybin. You know, and even psilocybin, you know, psilocybin isn't good for them, good enough for them, because they want to be able to patent 
things and psilocybin has been around forever and even though psilocybin is probably close to the perfect psychedelic you know in some ways it has everything one would want in a psychedelic compatibility with human metabolism very profound effects non-toxic all of these things Terrett used to say psilocybin is made for man you know well he should have said made for humans but that was back in the day and but that's true you know it's almost the ideal psychedelic in some ways and now they think these companies that are so anxious to make a derivative or patent a formulation or you know i mean it it's not really necessary you know maybe something novel will come out of it but there's this, you know, in the corporate competitive space, there's always the desire to find something, make something proprietary. Uh, and many of these companies, uh, most of them, I, I think, are ignorant of the potential to find new psychedelics in nature. Otherwise, they would be funding some of this research. You know, I mean, they're out there. They can be found. Uh, and, you know, anytime you're dealing with natural products research, there's always the the potential for, you know, uh, replicating what you've already found. You know, just another tryptamine from the Amazon. Well, that's not good enough. You know, it's got to be some new thing from the Amazon or from Africa and so on. But they do exist. But I don't think companies are putting a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of effort into this. And I think that the corporatization of psychedelics is fraught with pitfalls you know uh for one thing the you know i think the corporations need to recognize that they have an obligation that they're using indigenous knowledge and historically this has always been the case you know biopiracy has a long history whether it comes to food plants or medicinal plants or whatever, that, you know, they just take the knowledge, thank you very much, and they make, you know, profitable medicines out of it and very rarely give anything back to the indigenous people that are, after all, the stewards of, of this knowledge. So that's another thing the McKenna Academies, you know, committed to, to try and help indigenous people have a stake in this you know in general they're open to sharing their knowledge but it would be nice if there was some kind of a give back and how you get that is sometimes complicated it's not enough to just pay them off they don't even often relate to money and there's governments politicians all that a lot of potential for corruption there so we've talked a lot about undiscovered right, natural products right. and the potential that exists in that domain and you were mentioning how a lot of these pharmaceutical companies are focused on the synthesis of novel compounds as opposed to natural product discovery, and which makes sense to me given how easy it is to yes, generate yes. new psychedelics. You know, I, I made a new psychedelic last week. It's easy to do. But, but you've also done quite a few publications on 
synthetic psychedelic compounds, you co-authored a really amazing publication with David Repke, where you looked at the relative 2A and 1A binding affinities of a variety of different, very unusual tryptamine psychedelics. Could you tell me mm -hmm. a little bit about that paper? I mean, David Repke did such remarkable work, and his name is almost never mentioned in discussions of psychedelic history. And I mm -hmm. also can't help but wonder, was anybody testing these compounds? Were you or Repke doing self-experiments with those compounds in conjunction with the binding work? Yeah. Well, uh, yes, I wasn't. I didn't have enough to, to actually test. I got a few milligrams from him and from Shulgin, uh, but Repke was testing them, and, uh, and Sasha was testing them, and... Yeah, so there was there was testing going on. In fact, I think that they reported some of that in one of the papers. And he Repke got into big trouble with uh, with Syntex where he worked because of that. Uh, he didn't do the work at Syntex, but he he did report in a paper with Shulgin that they had tested some of them, and and he got he got burned for that, you know. But yeah, that was that was an interesting uh, that was an interesting series to to sort through at the time. That was another Perutka Lab uh, project, and and again we were we were under the uh, working under the impression that there were these two distinct serotonin receptors. You know, it was a mis misunderstanding of what was actually going on, but still. It, it was interesting. Uh, it was an interesting paper for sure. How do you say it was a mis why was it a misunderstanding? Well, like I said before, you know, Steve Peruka was convinced that oh. the like with the DOI, the DOI was labeling a subtype. It wasn't labeling a subtype. It was labeling uh, a high affinity conformation of the 5-HT2A receptor. You know, which was already in the literature. We knew this. He didn't want to confirm it, basically, because that would have interfered with his uh, aspirations to be the discoverer of a new serotonin receptor. I mean, I mean, I like Steve. I'm still in touch with him. But this is a good example of scientific hubris. You know, that actually, I think a willful misinterpretation of the data. If you want to know my honest opinion and uh we should have uh, not done that but what did i know i was just his postdoc and i you know he was like the god of serotonin so if he said it was it must have been so this good example of you know there's always a backstory in science you know and you can't uh, separate uh, people's personalities it is it is a human endeavor after all and uh Scientists are, you know, they have their own agendas. And case do you of, think that? Do you think that the idea that two A was responsible was somehow insufficient because it seemed like there would have to be something else? Like two A didn't seem like it was enough of an explanation for psychedelic action because this is one of the things that happens when you study psychedelics is you might at least superficially think there's got to be something really crazy going on something that is doing something so dramatic to consciousness it's it's got to be binding to some special magical part of the brain or it has to activate some special magical receptor that nothing else touches in any way and mm -hmm. then you find oh, okay it's they're acting in the cerebral cortex 
as do many yeah. other things. And they're yeah. acting at 5-HT2A receptors, as do many other things, maybe not quite in exactly the same way. But from a biochemical, pharmacological perspective, there's nothing psychedelic or bizarre about the way psychedelics act. No, exactly. Uh, and they are the 5-HT2A receptors. And I think, you know, like a lot of these things are are not that selective, but they do hit those key receptors, you know. I mean, at NIH, when I was there, and we were doing autoradiography, we published papers about this, where, you know, we used iodinated LSD to label the receptors, and then we could use cold DOI to displace the receptor by the receptor sites that they had in common, and then reverse that and show that LSD and DOI bound to the same receptors by doing replacement experiments. And yeah, I, I think it was more like you say, wow, there's got to be some kind of magical receptor for psychedelics. I mean, that is magical thinking. And it's not scientific thinking. It's the 5-HT2A receptor. It's magical enough, obviously, <laughs> you know. Uh, and there's lots to be uh, still learned about those receptors. There are 5-HT2A agonists that uh, that are not psychedelic, you know. Uh, but I don't think they're binding to some, I don't think psychedelics are binding to some undiscovered receptor. I think it depends on where their 5-HT2 receptors, but where they are and so on is probably what makes them different, you know. This this is an in, this is interesting. This is current too now. Number of companies that want to develop new compounds, they want to they want to chemically engineer the molecule to to get rid of the psychedelic experience, right? This is regarded as an undesirable side effect. You know of the psych, uh, you know, and they want to get rid of that. So you have the therapeutic experience, but not the actual psychedelic experience. I think that approach is so full of shit. I can't even begin to tell you. You know, I mean, it's just absurd, and it's mostly done by people that have never taken a psychedelic, probably. But I think that's just a very wrong-headed approach. Well, I just don't think it's going to work. That's my feeling is go ahead, you know, try, knock yourself out. So, you, you know, if you make it work, congratulations. I just don't predict it's going to happen. I don't think it is going to happen either because I think the, the therapeutic effect of psychedelics has to do with, you know, basically de disabling the default mode network, you know, temporarily. And that that's where the therapy happens, it lets you step outside of this reference frame, you know, and look at your problem, addiction, trauma, whatever it might be, from a fresh perspective, and it produces catharsis, you know, in some ways you could say these things are cathartogens, and that, that reset, and, you know, that reset, it really is like a reset of your computer. You know, you, you blow it up, you blow up the, the default mode network. And of course, the brain, like all biological systems, it tends toward equilibrium. So it will fall back together, but it's more functional now. It's literally, I think it's really similar to resetting your computer. Gets the glitches out of it. Today's experience notwithstanding, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think, I think that the, 
the experience of the the psychedelic experience can't be divorced from the the neural pharmacology of it i just don't think that's the right approach but like you say if someone manages to do it uh more power to them but i i'd be very surprised if that could happen right and i think there's also in this renaissance there's an increased appreciation of the cautionary elements what can go wrong because if something like 90 percent of the united states has never used a psychedelic and we are going to be approving them as medicines we have to be ultra aware of the potential problems that emerge earlier in the conversation you said that you don't like psychedelic cults and i think that this is one of the things that tends to emerge or sometimes these sort of religious movements which can be good or they can be problematic but have you had any experiences with psychedelic cults or interacted with any of these uh, psychedelic religions outside of UDV? Well, not really. A little bit. I mean, I've been to, you know, this goes on in the ayahuasca, you know, uh, gringo ayahuasca uh, territory all the time. You know, they're dodgy shamans and a lot of often cult-like, you know, sexual abuse, all of this kind of stuff. I, I don't, I think people get the impression that this, that's all it is. And that's really not, I think that's fairly rare. I think, you know, in the, uh, you know, in Peru where I've had a lot of experiences with retreats, most curanderos are actually pretty decent people, you know, and they don't have, uh, you know, this, this power driven, uh, you know, impulse to dominate people or, or, you know, abuse people and so on. But it, it does it does go on. And, you know, Hamilton, I think it's not just psychedelics. I think any powerful spiritual technology, which is basically what these things are, you know, meditation, yoga, all of these spiritual practices, if you, if you get involved with them in these group-type situations... There's a, there's often some power mad person, usually a man, not always, but you know who sees that as a path to power and dominance over people because they're coming there deliberately to put themselves in a vulnerable situation. The whole idea of taking psychedelics in these group settings is to be able to open up and open yourself up on many levels and uh, that's what's necessary for the healing so if there's someone who is you know in a position of power and authority that's an opportunity for them to you know really abuse that that position and they don't have the uh, you know the best interests of their clients at, at heart so i guess the the solution is know your curandero, you know, or, or you know, uh, be careful. Don't just go on the internet and select the first one that comes up, you know. Ask trusted friends. Ask people that are experienced in, in this area and, you know, to give you personal connections to someone that is ethical. And there, there are many. There are many out there. There are also many people that, you know, you wouldn't take it with on a bet, you know, and and uh, so it's 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 tricky territory sometimes. 
Did you ever have any interaction with the Temple of the True Inner Light, this uh, DPT religion in New York? I have not had any interactions with them. Are they still doing their thing? Not wow. quite the same way they once did. Oh, no, I I don't know. I mean, they must be, must be one of the longest-lived psychedelic cults around. I remember they were doing it in, like, the 60s, right? They, they had a, a sort of unofficial offshoot of the Native American church that dates back, yeah, into the 60s, I believe. But, uh, hmm. yeah. Have, no, I have not, no connection with them. Have yeah. you? Yes, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've talked with them quite a bit, and they, the leader of the group is a chemist, and he would synthesize yeah. various tryptamine psychedelics, and then they would use them in their communions. And it was a, a bona fide, and in some sense continues to be a bona fide religious group that worships synthetic psychedelics. Hmm. Well, it could be. I mean, there's there's no reason why it couldn't be. It's, it's not that these things can't be used, you know, responsibly, and maybe in a group like this. So you've got your chemist, and you've got people kind of like Shulgin's, uh, you know, coterie of people that would that would test his compounds out. You've got a, a group of experienced trippers, and they can try these things out, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's tr That's being a psychonaut. I, I long since gave up any ambitions to be a psychonaut in that sense. I don't have to take every drug that's out there. You know, I, I prefer to work with the ones I know and get a deeper relationship with ayahuasca and mushrooms and DMT. Those are my main psychedelics for me personally. So for you and your brother, there is no real interest in DET or DPT or those sorts of things? Not particularly, no. I, I mean, I, I, I have had limited experience with them. For one thing, I mean, I've taken DET. I don't see anything that makes it any better than DMT. Uh, yeah. So again, from a from a uh, just curious curiosity point of view, I I'm glad other people are doing that work. I hope they keep careful notes, and you know, but I don't feel I have to do that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a, I can send you a paper. You might find it interesting. There was a chemist that just found a whole new group of tetrahydrobetacarbolines that are very, very potent psychedelics. They're not naturally occurring, but uh, they're pretty close to known beta-carbolines, and they're remarkably potent. So, yeah, there, there's so much work left to be done in this area, and I'm so glad that, uh, that you've made all the contributions that you have. Yeah, now that paper I would be very interested in. I'll send yeah, it over. Please yeah. send me that paper. That's is he underground? He or she? Whoever it's, is it? It's a it's a woman at Northwestern University who's okay. doing it uh, very much above ground. Interesting. Um, paper didn't get much attention, and they're very easy to synthesize. I just synthesized one of them this week just to uh, try to replicate her findings. And okay. they're five yeah. HT two A agonists. Yes, very very high affinity. 2A agonists. Very cool. I'd like to know about that. Yeah, I'll send it to you. And okay. you mentioned that you were trying to do fewer podcasts, so I really appreciate that you took the time <laughs> to speak with me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I do try and do fewer podcasts, but uh, you know, I know you reach a lot of people, and so that's good. 
and uh, and thank you for letting me plug my conference and and my academy and all that. And people can write to me if people can write to me at uh, the best way. Best thing to do is write to me at connect at mckenna.academy is the best way to reach me. Uh, and uh, we want to hear from people. And uh, yeah. I'd appreciate it if you put the links up on your website and I'll send you some other material that will help. We've got some promotional, you know, graphics and, uh, and I'll send you a couple papers that you might be interested in. Oh Just yeah. So we'll put all that up yeah. and please send that yeah. all along. Well, yeah. And thank you so much for everything that you've done. I really am a tremendous appreciator of your work. Well, thank you so much, Hamilton. Me too. You, uh, you have gone. I, I appreciate your work too. You have uh, made your own contributions. Sometimes you go where angels fear to tread, and there needs to be somebody doing that. So, you know, safe journeys in all dimensions, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Have a good night, Dennis. Thank you so much. Thank you.